I think that with social media, but also this has been happening for a long time. Social media is a product of a longer line of capitalism, right? But um, I think that this comes back to the idea that like we shouldn't be making anything if it can't be sold um, or Mm -hmm. it can't be shown in a gallery. And that's such a almost impossible to do. Like if you're having a practice and you're showing up regularly, I can't even explain how many awful paintings I make. You're listening to Art and Magic, and I'm your host, Devin Walls. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today's conversation is with Lindsay Stripling, and it's a really fun one. We get to bounce around just a lot of different fun topics that I know are on everyone's minds. We talk about style development, developing a consistent studio practice, a bit about Lindsay's story and how she holds the titles of painter and illustrator and kind of what those two approaches look like for her. We talk about boredom and why that's been an important element for Lindsay to get back to. But my absolute favorite part of this conversation that sparked so much joy and inspiration for me was getting to hear Lindsay talk about the thought, story, and philosophies that go into her work. She has such a beautiful way of giving language to what's very intangible. And it's kind of the thing that I I really want to get out of a lot of people that I interview. I love hearing how people think about their work. Um, Yeah, and how their process weaves in and out of their creative decisions. But it's a hard thing to ask about. And so it just felt really special that we got to this place in the conversation where Lindsay was able to talk about that. And I found it really inspiring. So that happens um, more towards the end, I think in the last 20 minutes, but keep an ear out for it. I think it'll really fuel the way that you think about your work. Kind of on a personal note, and I think why this part of the conversation spoke to me so much is I've been spending a lot of time this past year and a half, and particularly these last four months, really trying to understand my own work um, and bring a bit more intention to the series that I make, the pieces that I make on an individual basis. And a lot of that has looked like um, working with Penny Lane, who I've had on the show to help me with my artist statement. I'm also part of a small group. I don't want to call it a crit group because that um, would be misleading because we're much more casual than that, but a group where we've gotten together to talk about our work and offer each other reflections. And that's been so helpful. Um, I've been doing a lot of writing on my own, but I've found that listening to conversations like the one that I got to have with Lindsay has really participated in that process for me. It's helped me see how other people are putting language to things. And especially when your work is like abstract or very surreal, um, you know, not necessarily grounded in this physical reality like my work is, it's quite the rabbit hole and quite the process. Um, So yeah, I just want to say that like this is where I've been at. It's something I'm really interested in right now. But what has really helped me has been getting reflections from other artists um, in my personal life behind the scenes and on this podcast. So if you're wanting that, 
I would encourage you to do the same thing. If you're wanting to find like more of the meaning in your work and more of the story and bring a little bit more depth, finding people that can go back and forth with you, share with you what they see in your work, and then spending time on your own and really putting in the work to do the reflections, I find is such a rewarding process and enriches your work so much. So I just wanted to offer that. It's a bit of a tangent, but it's what I'm thinking about right now. So it might land with you as well. Okay, so a couple notes for the show before we get into it. If you'd like to support us, the best way to do so is by becoming a patron over on the Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. If you enjoy this content every month over there, there is a exclusive bonus episode of the show, and it's usually me talking about a topic, much like I do on the solo episodes. Every now and then we'll have a guest and the conversation is a little bit more raw, um, and you can get that for just $5 a month, or if is too much and you want to just throw out a couple bucks, there's an option for that as well. Um, The other way you can support us is by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and or sharing the episode you're listening to over on Instagram. The Instagram shares go a really long way. It's really how other artists find their way to the show. So that is always so appreciated. Okay, so show things aside, if you don't already know our guest today, Lindsay Stripling is a San Francisco-based illustrator and teacher. Her work is always coming from a place of layering, texture, and experimentation. She likes to keep things fun and explore themes of nature, time, memory, community, and psychology. When Lindsay isn't drawing or painting in her backyard in the sunset, she can be found walking in Golden Gate Park or looking for a new book at the library. She's taught team building workshops for Google, Pixar, Shutterfly, and Nike, and has worked with clients such as Adobe, Nike, Intercom, MindBodyGreen, Bust Magazine, the St. Regis Hotel, and more. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Lindsay. There it is. There's that creepy voice. (laughs) Um, All right. Awesome. Well, Lindsay, it's so great to have you on the show. Uh, I've been following Lunch Club for a little bit, and I love to talk to other artists who are also often in conversation. I think that makes things really fun. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while, and I love like having conversations with artists who are also, like you said, having conversations, but, you know, maybe trying to find language for things that sometimes feel like we don't have language for. So it's exciting. Yeah, totally. Um, excited to get more into that. Um, <laughs> but just to start us off, could you tell us just like a bit about you and your work and maybe just a little bit about your background for those who don't know you? Yeah. um, uh, My name is Lindsay. I live in San Francisco in the outer sunset, like right near the beach and the park. Um, I'm an illustrator and a painter and uh, a teacher. Um, I think those are my, those are my titles. (laughs) And I uh, went to uh, fine art school. So I studied actually at UC Santa Cruz. I studied photography uh, back in the day and then uh, like literal black and white in the darkroom photography and then um, left college and was bartending and doing a lot of painting. And during that whole time at UC Santa Cruz, I was painting, but I just didn't feel a connection necessarily with like oil paints. Um, And there wasn't necessarily a program in the art department at UC Santa Cruz at the time 
like the alternative painting was uh, acrylic. There was an acrylic class, like one acrylic class. And I was like, I don't know if that's for me. So I did photo and after I left, I was like, I'm still painting. So I went back to SFAI, maybe like five years later or four years later and uh, kept bartending, kept serving in restaurants and um, studied painting for like two years. So it wasn't a master's program. It was just more like, I felt like I wanted a more formal training in painting. Um, it's pre all the online classes and I, it felt like there wasn't really another option. So went into some debt and I don't regret it. It was a really great experience, but uh, yeah. So, and stayed in San Francisco ever since. Awesome. Cool. Um, that's interesting about like the alter I'm, I'm self-taught, which if you listen to the podcast, I talk about that yeah, all yeah. the time. Um, so it's interesting that when you were in school, like the main option for painting is, was just oil painting. I didn't know that yeah. that was a thing. I think I really imagine art school as being this very like experimental place where you get to like learn everything. Like, yeah. uh, so it's interesting to hear. Well, and I don't know, you know, my only experience at the time was UC Santa Cruz, which had a really epic art department and um, like beautiful buildings, uh, really robust like printmaking program. Um, I think a lot of it was like my own mental limitations on like what I could possibly do with like printmaking or something like that. Um, I fell in love with the dark room and the professors there, but um, yeah, painting, it was very traditional oil painting program. Um, I had friends who did great in that program, um, but for me, it just felt, it just wasn't quite what I want. Now I work on paper and I, I feel like had I found paper sooner, maybe that would have, um, fostered something for me, but it was, it was all the professors in the painting program were very, you know, like traditional painters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, your work now is mostly on paper and your primary medium is watercolor and gouache. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Cool. So I do want to talk a little bit, um, just about like finding your style and finding your way. I know that you teach a course called yellow brick road, which I've heard really great things about. Um, and it seems like that's all about like building your creative practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I've been teaching watercolor like technique workshops for almost 10 years now. Um, and I started doing them online with creative bug and taught like in-person workshops and they're all very technique based. And I always try to infuse like some question asking into those classes, but it's kind of hard in a limited time period to like, uh, also like foster like a little bit more of like an introspection uh, while we're just trying to figure out the medium. Um, but I would talk to students like after like teaching these workshops to them, some of them ended up being like people in the neighborhood or, or whatever. Cause I teach, I used to teach like um, at my friend's uh, shop and I would see people and they would be like, oh, that was such a fun class. And I'd be like, are you still painting? And they would kind of be like, no, I don't really know what to do now that I know how to paint, you know, like it was really fun doing that project with you, but um, you know, what, I don't know what I would make. And so I started kind of asking myself, like, how can I foster like a painting practice for people? Because not everyone wants to, or can go into debt, uh, or has the time to be able to like do a studio class, even at like a city college level, you know? Um, so, which I took city college classes, um, in Santa Cruz and they were the best. Um, but it did require like commuting to school and doing all. So I was like, how can I foster that for people? Because to me, maybe people don't have 
a painting practice where they're doing gallery shows, but maybe it's just for themselves. And that's just as valid and important. And I want to foster a space where we get to ask questions of ourselves and of our paintings and of the world around us in a way that is maybe, maybe like take some time, take some thoughtfulness. So the class I was supposed to teach in person for the first time last year. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I was really excited to teach this class. I can't do it anymore. And I decided to try and teach it virtually. Some people who were signed up to take it in person transferred over to take it virtually with me. And then I had a few other people sign up and it ended up being so cool because the question asking prompted, you know, part of it is I present these questions and we have these discussions alongside developing a practice. It also requires the people taking the class to be vulnerable with each other. Like what part of this is hard? Um, you know, we talk a lot about like life story and life experience as a means of deciding what you want to dive deeper into, but also deciding what you want to let go of. Like a lot of the storytelling we do to ourselves is stories that we choose to carry with us, right? Um, consciously or unconsciously. Um, so it's a lot of like diving into personal storytelling um, and it requires everyone in the class to be present, right? Like to hold space for one another. Um, so it ends up being like a really like powerful experience. I think you know, I've still talked to a lot of people who took it a year ago and they have, uh, you know, found tools for like figuring out how to show up for themselves creatively um, and just in a deeper way, which is really cool. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, I want to take that course. I teach stuff like that too um, in, my, in my own way. And also um, I think there's really something to like being in somebody else's structure because often I know for me, part of building a practice is like, I just need the container. Like, even if I have the knowledge, there's something about being in a start to finish container with a group of other people with somebody's guidance outside of my own head. Um, and I just think that's such a valuable thing. So (laughs) I love that. Um, I'm curious when people come to you, maybe they're in their course or, or in your course or not. Um, And they're really wanting to like cultivate their voice. Like they know the medium, they are kind of good at like hybriding styles together and things they've seen, but they really want to emerge with like their own thing. Um, Do you have any like early recommendations that you give them or questions to ask themselves? I know you talked about um, focusing on your story. So maybe that's part of it, but I'm curious if there's more there or other things there too. Yeah, like, so we also talk a lot about like looking at like who your team is, like, so who are the people or what are the things that bring endless inspiration to you? So this isn't just like, you know, I found a cool illustrator on Instagram. This is like, oh, you know, I've always looked back on, uh, you know, this particular painter's like uh, paintings and, and left feeling like really excited to paint. Or, um, I always watch like, you know, Wes Anderson's movies and I'm so inspired by the color palette. And we start to talk a little bit kind of, um, like a good example that people are probably familiar with is like Austin Kleon's like steal like an artist, like thinking about like, how do we diversify and think about the things that bring us inspiration that sometimes we don't even realize are, a part of who we could be creatively. Like, I think we live in this like social media world where 
we see almost the same images over and over again in a lot of ways. And so then it becomes this really weird echo chamber. And I love social media. I love the image sharing. I love the democratization of like, uh, you know, painting and, and, and sharing imagery. But I also think it, it sometimes it is a black hole and we get kind of stuck in there and we don't realize that there's already like a lot of things that we already know, right? Um, a lot of things we're already attracted to, a lot of things that maybe we don't pay attention to because we don't consider it valuable that we try to spend a lot of time kind of like mining. So um, we do that and I encourage people to uh, remove themselves a little bit from the digital realm as far as finding inspiration goes. So like actually interacting with real books, um, going to actual shows, um, engaging with art, uh, whether it's music or movies or going for a walk or going on a hike um, in like a, a more present way, which um, I think really when we do that, um, it's almost impossible not to be excited to create work um, and to remember like who we are. So that combined with like your story and storytelling, right? Mm. Yeah, it's so true. When we spend so much time on Instagram or social media, like art can really just become this thing that we experience on a screen and yeah, it um, happens to us. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, and on the one hand, it's like, it's such a, it's such an accessible point for people to learn about art and see things. So there's a positive there, but it can really, it can really take away from like actually gathering inspiration in, in real life. Um, it's, it's really not a substitute for that. And I think it's, easy to forget that because we are so in it all the time, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of like, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, um, the democratization is really cool. I think Soleil and you had talked about that, which I think is amazing. Um, but I also think there's a lot of like really focusing on like people of a certain age, um, mm -hmm. who are creating work because they engage in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that what happens when we slow down and engage, like, in our physical space and in our community and in uh, the artists and art history that we love and already engage, like are excited about, like we have been engaging in this place, but we just maybe don't give it as much of a pedestal as we do like um, something that's like polished, like Instagram. Um, we kind of, uh, you know, we lose, I think a little bit of the diversity that is available, the diversity of thought, the long, like slow, uh, reality of having a painting practice that, mm -hmm. that hopefully is like 50 years long or, you know, however long you need it to be, but yeah, it's not immediate. Um, and it, you know, I think that that can sometimes get lost. Mm -hmm. I love that drawing attention to that about the age thing, because I think in so many, um, mediums as well. I also dance. So like I follow a lot of dance stuff on Instagram and I oh, think yeah. it's a similar thing where it's like, okay, people who are dancers and artists are 23 to 33 or 35. Yeah, you're like, after that, they just fall off. Like, yeah. They're done. Because those are the people like, that's the age group that's rises to the top on social media. Cause those are the people who grew up with it. It's not like a real sampling of the industries. Um, so I love that point. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so important. And it's not good for your own self-concept to feel like, okay, well, I have to do everything before I'm 35 or 40. Um, that creates a whole anxiety as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think it, um, 
you know, in a lot of ways, we just kind of forget how new Instagram is and the history of like how we engage with art or how we like think about art making. Um, and I love it. I love Instagram. I use it for all of lunch club. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. free. My mom comes on. It's like, you know, it's a good time, but um, it's, yeah, if we forget that it's not, it's not everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to kind of go back to what you touched on about painting being like a long, slow practice. Um, and I think that cultivating a studio practice, like a solid, even if you don't have like a studio proper, um, I think that's a difficult thing to navigate. It's something I've thought about a lot in the past couple of years. And I have this sense that it goes hand in hand with finding your voice. And so I'm wondering if you just like have advice or thoughts on that, like how somebody can start to cultivate a really strong studio practice and, and what you think that might look like. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's so funny. I think I'm still cultivating, you know, I'm still cultivating those things for myself. And so I think that if I can, uh, be honest about that, like I'm still working on like having like epic gallery shows or figuring out how to show, I haven't, you know, how to show up for my work in a way that feels sustainable and exciting. I think if we can be honest about that, like that's a practice in and of itself. Um, but also, you know, I think showing up looks different for everyone. Like I was talking to my friend Georgia on lunch club and she's, um, over in the outer sunset and is a ceramicist and a painter. And she's a little older than me. And she was saying like, when my, when I had my kids, I could only show up like 15 minutes a week, Mm -hmm. but I showed up 15 minutes a week. Right. So, um, you know, or like, you know, I have this tiny little shed, which is literally a shed in my backyard now, but before I was working in my living room for seven years. Um, so for me that worked because I was bartending and working restaurants at night. Um, so when I would come home at night, I could work, um, for a little bit and I could wake up and work, um, and not have to like do an extra commute, right. Like with everything else, but I think utilizing what you have, um, and recognizing how you can show up is the biggest thing you can do for yourself. I'm a recovering all or nothing thinker as like a lifelong athlete, (laughs) like just always, I always do this thing where I was just explaining this to um, my Patreon peeps, but I always do this thing where I like, when I stopped swimming at like 26, like on a team, you know, I would go to do lap swimming and I would think to myself, like, as I'm lap swimming, almost like unconsciously, all right, well, I'm going to do this five days a week. This is going to become a practice. Like, just like I'm on a team again. And I can't, I don't have the time for that. I can't show up like that. Right. Um, it's an unfair demand to ask of myself because, um, even if I show up three days a week, which is a win, um, it's not five. And so I'm disappointed and I'm pissed. And then I just don't show up at all. And Mm -hmm. so I think the same is true for like studio practice, like rather than setting unattainable goals, um, ask yourself, like, what can I actually like put into my schedule? Like when can I actually carve out time? Maybe it's like, uh, before the kids wake up, um, maybe it's like on the weekend, maybe, you know, all of that does require potentially communicating to the people around you, like, Hey, I'm going to be like doing my studio practice today, (laughs) you know, like whether that's, I'm just in the corner of the living room. I need you to not talk to me, or I'm going to rent a studio space for $200 a month and like, see how that feels. You know, you can't find that here. That's, I know. I was like, so where can we get that next question? (laughs) (laughs) You used to be able to do that anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that doability piece is so important. And I really relate to the all or nothing mindset. Um, there's something about, and this might just be personal to me, but like when you want something so badly and you love something so much, I know for myself, there's like a certain intensity that often accompanies that, that then often is also counterproductive. And I think the swimming is a good example because I know sports can really be like that. And I've seen that in other areas of my life too. Um, and then that kind of just leads me to this idea about feeling like we have to overproduce work to like get ahead, um, declare our value as an artist. And I'm just wondering, yeah, have you felt that? How have you like been combating that? Um, do you think social media contributes to that? And yeah. Well, I saw this question. I like this question. I just want to know what you mean when, or what you think of when you think of overproducing work. Mm, it's such a good question. Yeah. Cause I guess we kind of have to define like, yeah, I want to, I, I feel like that could go a lot of different ways. And I just, am curious, like when you say that, what do you think of? I think I think of, um, like pushing my time and my energy beyond what would be healthy for me. So not necessarily okay. like the amount of work. Cause I guess there are conversations about like flooding the market with your work. And that's not necessarily what I'm thinking about. I'm just thinking about like feeling insecure that you need to like race to get better. And therefore you feel oh. like you need to be producing all the time and showing up on social media. And it's like this never ending stream of production and creation, which is very capitalistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, that's what I thought you meant, but I also was, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I, I get lost in how like the assumptions I make around words and I just wanted to make sure. Um, so yeah, we, you know, we actually talk about this in yellow brick road. Like, um, I think that with social media, but also this has been happening for a long time. Social media is a product of a longer line of capitalism. Right. But, um, I think that this comes back to the idea that like, we shouldn't be making anything if it can't be sold, um, or, mm -hmm it can't be shown in a gallery. And that's such a, I'm sure you can relate to this too. That's almost impossible to do. Like if you're having a practice and you're showing up regularly, I can't even explain how many awful paintings I make. Like I can't, I can't actually put into words. It's an uncountable number. It's an infinite. And sometimes work that I think is really great ends up not being that great, you know, um, or people don't read it in that way. Maybe I really like it, but, um, so like approaching something like a painting or a painting practice, which I think requires a lot of question asking and also like gentleness and room to play, um, asking it to be this really rigid thing, like fit into a rigid box. is a really hard thing to do. I, I know some people are really successful at it. You know, there's a lot of people who seem to be like selling work immediately or have found like a really great way of balancing those two. Um, I did for a long time do commissioned work and I would do what I called like mystery paintings. So, and I felt like that was a good balance because I basically told everyone who was buying one that they couldn't know what it was going to be. <laughs> Love so that. then I was allowed to just do whatever I wanted, um, which was really fun. 
Um, but I think I've known for a long time that I'm almost like, if I put expectations on myself to make something great, I'm just not going to, because that pressure is not good enough. So if I can actually ask myself to make work and not have the expectation of it being sold, um, and that's hard because if you're having a practice, you do need to make money somewhere. Right. So that's kind of where illustration and teaching have come in to kind of support that playfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point that I, I don't think I was able to articulate in the original question, but there is such a correlation between rat racing and overproducing and the need to sell, like they're intricately connected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so when you feel like, or even I, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about how when time feels precious, it feels like everything I make needs to be good enough to sell. And that is like a recipe for disaster in your art practice. Um, So yeah, I love this reminder of like, it has to be playful. It is important to take the pressure off in the selling department if you can. Um, Yeah. I think there's just so much danger. I remember professors saying that to me when I was younger and being pissed because I'm like, I need to make, you know, I want to be in a gallery. I want to make work. I need to sell work. And and unfortunately, you know, art and the way that art is set up in our society it can be a career. It requires a different approach, right? Like you have to actually come up with ways for you to engage in your practice or support your practice through other means so that you can ask questions for a while and make bad work and like have the freedom to, to play. And so for me, for a long time, that was bartending. I had to, you know, I had to do that to make ends meet. Um, for other people, it's a full-time job. Um, Some people get an MFA and are professors on the side. Um, And now, you know, I think what's really cool is illustration and painting can happen at the same time. When I was in college, there was a, it was a big deal. um, If someone called your painting like illustrative, that was like a insult. That was like the Mm. worst thing that could happen. And maybe that's more of like a fine art thing, but there was definitely like, you know, people really had a hard time holding two things at once that like you could be an illustrator and you could be a painter. Um, And I feel like I've probably spent the last 10 years convincing myself that I could do both. (laughs) Mm. I don't know that I am, but I'm trying. You absolutely, you absolutely are. And that's such a great point. Um, Yeah. I think I intuitively, without having the language for it, felt that about your work that like, it is definitely fine art. Um, and I think it's because you, I imagine it must be because you also honor and see it that way. And it could also fit into the category of illustration, but not in a way that it detracts from the work at all. I mean, I like illustration, so that wouldn't be my opinion anyway. (laughs) Um, but yeah, was, so I'm imagining that was like a process for you. What did that look like? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you know, I've heard your conversations around like going to school and not going to school. And this is kind of like a tired point, but at the same time, like, you know, one of the things that's hard when you go to school is you do have to find ways to let go of the voices of your professors in a lot of ways, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or find professors whose voices you want to keep around. Right. Um, But I think that, um, or not even professors, just your own voices based on the feedback that you've gotten, which I think is my issue, but um, you know, and a lot of it is my own internalized, like how I interpreted feedback. Right. But um, I think when, when I realized that I could do illustration, I had to start asking myself, like, what is the difference? Because it is different. I show up for it differently. And what I realized is that 
when I am doing illustration, I am problem solving for other people. So I'm, I'm actually solving a problem for a client. Um, and when I'm doing a painting practice, I'm actually solving my own problems. And a lot of it is based on questions that I'm asking. So that's where like having an interest in things outside of just painting is really important, right? Like it can be such a, um, an echo chamber, like we talked about before, where if, if you're painting just because you like painting, um, it feels a little empty. You have to have like ideas you're excited about or things you're yeah. curious about or be asking questions and, and be okay uh, and with being uncomfortable and not knowing the answers. Hey y'all, we'll get back to the episode in just a minute. Um, but first I wanna talk to you about selling framed prints of your work to your collectors in the absolute easiest way possible. And that is by using the Frame It Easy Shopify app. So this is a total game changer for how you sell prints. First of all, I already love Frame It Easy frames. They're where I already refer my collectors. And now with this app, all you have to do is upload the digital file of your work and Frame It Easy takes care of everything else. They'll provide the size options, the styles, and they'll ship it right to your collector's door with your own branding on it and everything. How cool is that? To get started, all you have to do is set up your Shopify store and search Frame It Easy within the Shopify app to install it. Then you upload the file of the work you want to sell and that's it, you're done. And just for being a listener of this show, you can get $100 towards sample frames, what? By going to frameiteasy.com backslash artmagic, also in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So do you feel like when you're approaching your illustrations versus, um, do you say, do you like call them different things? I guess illustration work would just be the context and that you're doing it for a client. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, I think that's the only way I mm-hmm. delineate them is if okay. I'm doing it for me or not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. Cause I was kind of like, well, your style, but the style and the aesthetic of it is like pretty similar, right? Like your yeah, personal yeah. work versus your client work. Okay. So yeah. that's so great that you, um, like just, I'm thinking about like diversifying income streams and supporting one's practice. It's really nice that you have a style that works so well, like yeah. for client work in both. Was it always that way or did it evolve to be that way? You know, I think when, when I was in college and I was doing like back at SFAI and I was in the painting department, I was doing like hyper-realism, like really hyper-realistic drawings with Prismacolor pencils, mm. larger than life of myself. So I would say no, but, um, when I, in like 2014, I think, uh, so a couple of years after I graduated, I drove across the country and saw Amy Cutler at the Virginia, um, MOCA, which, uh, was in Virginia is in Virginia beach, I believe. And I had never seen Amy Cutler's work in person. And my friend Brooke Westfall was, um, who's an incredible painter. We were at a uh, root division in San Francisco together. And she introduced me to a lot of watercolor and gouache painters. Um, and Amy Cutler was one of them. So I got to see Amy Cutler's paintings in per- person. And if you're not familiar with her work, it's kind of, um, it's like this whole world. She's built this whole world. It's a whole world building where she's created this space that you enter into where she's breaking down like metaphors around women's work, around maintenance, Mm -hmm. around uh, like 
you know, and I, I, I think like what's cool about it is, is a little illustrative, but it is also painting, right? Um, and there's a lot of like metaphor and like storytelling involved in it. And I left, I sat there for hours, I cried, which I rarely do at museums. Um, and it was the first time where I like sat down with work and I was like, this is incredible. And I left and I was just like, I want to do that. Like I, I want to build a world. And so slowly I started doing that. Um, but I think what I really realized was that I wanted to build a world full of characters that can carry the stories of what I wanted to talk about. Right. So it took a lot of like asking, what are those stories? What are the things that I'm interested in talking about? And then through developing um, just the aesthetic and, and the characters and asking myself a lot of questions. And for a while they had like animal masks and faces and then eventually those fell away and they had like blue and green skin and eventually that fell away. And it was, uh, now I feel like I'm at a place where I can start to like play with the stories a little bit more. Mm. Um, but it did just require a slowness around like asking myself to be open to making really bad work <laughs> mm. in order to find that, you know? Yeah. So important. I get yeah. so excited when you're talking about world building. Cause I think that, um, that's something I really resonate with. And I, I noticed that even if the worlds are totally different than something that I might create, I'm really drawn to people's work where it yeah. feels like they've created a world. Yeah. Um, and it's such an exciting process. Like you just peer in and you might get a little glimpse and then suddenly your world becomes more and more populated. And I think that's such a, such a magical like process in its own way. Um, and yeah. I know something that you mentioned, you're kind of thinking about are like portals and entry points, um, which I love. That's like something I play with <laughs> all the time in my work. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, what do you feel like the entry point into your work is like, whether that's like when you're sitting down to create like a new version of that world. Um, and that's a really vague open-ended question, but I'm just curious, like what comes up for, for you? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, reading is a really big entry point reading and listening to music. So in order for me to find ideas, I have to have like a pretty decent reading practice. Um, and that's like a lot of nonfiction fiction is used to be really a big part of it. So a lot of like Murakami and magical realism and, and things like that. And then I realized that they were pulling from a lot of like philosophy and science and um other sorts of like theory so um my partner studied uh we both went to uc santa cruz and he studied philosophy um and recently i've been reading alan watts based on his suggestion and i just feel like when i'm reading philosophy or anything um images start coming to me and so i have like a pretty I didn't used to, but I have a pretty heavy sketchbook practice. So I just do a lot of drawing with um, graphite. And then um, when it's time to paint, it's usually like a pretty, you know, relatively detailed sketch. Like I would say probably for people who do detailed sketches, it's not, um, but <laughs> I do. I like, that's the point where I've realized I need to leave it. Like I need to leave room for play. Like if I get, I've tried multiple times to get really detailed with my underdrawings and I kind of lose the plot a little bit when I do that. I need to um, have a gap between the drawings um, 
and the painting, but that's usually my entry point into the work. Oh, that's super cool. I love that. I wasn't expecting that answer. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> reading. I mean, like in the best possible way, I like okay. hearing things that I, I wouldn't have thought of. Um, I also majored in philosophy. Not that I love to brag about that, but oh. yeah, since, since you brought it up, <laughs> uh, but it's been a while since I've <laughs> dove into any dense oh. reading. I think I got a little scarred after college. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a lot of reading. It gets real dense real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what an incredible base though, for your practice. Like, I just think that that's the question. That's your job as a philosopher is to ask questions, right? Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's an incredible base for painting practice, I think. Yeah. I think it has come in the most when it's, um, comes to understanding my work and like trying to write about it, which I'm actively like trying to get better at, but I, yeah. I notice most of my skills come from the philosophy foundation. So at least it wasn't oh. totally useless. <laughs> I love, yeah. You're like, I feel like when Dave graduated, it was like, well, okay, now what? You know, yeah. Like, cool. Show up. Yeah. Yeah. It comes, comes in the back door, but it's not something I usually lead with in topics of conversation. <laughs> Oh, oh man, I love that. All right, so right now you're reading Alan Watts. Are there any other books that have been like particularly inspiring for your art? I'm like, what? Um, <laughs> I really, uh, oh, we. I recently was talking with, I think Sarah Green, um, who is a incredible, incredible painter and children's book illustrator who was on Lunch Club about the complete Cosmicomics by Italo Calvino. And that's another um book that I always return, come back to. Um, and then also last year I read a lot of Samantha Hunt, um, and just love, love, I started getting into horror a little bit, like, Ooh, um, fun. yeah, <laughs> just because I think that with, uh, like Carmen Maria Machado too, like there's something about horror that maybe initially puts people off because you think it's going to be like saw or something but it's actually like this place where you automatically as a reader suspend reality like I'm really interested in asking the viewers to my paintings to kind of like trust me that um we can kind of like break with reality and maybe it's me asking myself to do that as like someone who used to do hyperrealism, like, um, I used to use like flatness as a means of doing that. And so I'm just really curious about like, you know, how writing there's certain ways for, um, that authors and writers use that kind of like break with reality right in the beginning. And so then you kind of just trust them to do whatever they want with that world. Um, and you're kind of holding their hand and you're along for the ride in a really curious like way. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think that I like reading that type of style of book because it, it helps me try and figure out ways to do that in my work. Mm, that's so that cool. Sense. It totally <laughs> makes sense. I love it. I'm curious, and this might be hard to answer. You kind of, um, mentioned the flatness. Are there like oh, yeah. ways you're working with now? Um, maybe they're maybe they're newer, maybe they've been around for a while, um, that are like helping you. Yeah. Helping you translate that. Yeah. I used to do it with flatness. So I was like doing it a lot of like profile images or like kind of not differentiating the space, like not using shadow in the way that I normally would as a means of kind of like breaking with, uh, kind of the expected. And now I'm actually using scale, um, 
to do that. So uh, a painting I'm currently working on has a number of uh, archways uh, that are portals. I've used circles. I've used kind of like puddle shapes in the past and I'm getting really into like using archways um, where the front of the archways, like what would typically be a wall if you were looking out windows or something like that is actually a landscape. And then it's looking out on a landscape and the horizon line breaks. Um, and that asks us to think differently. And then also I like to play around with um, what I used to do was like break kind of the expected way you would think something would move behind or in front of something else. So um, when like, a, let's see, like an object was supposed to continue behind a tree, I would actually like change the level at which it would be so that you kind of like have this small place where you're like, oh, okay, well, like something weird's going on here. Like that's what it's intentional. It could be viewed as a mistake, but rather than having it be a mistake, it's like a way for us to kind of like it's almost like a glitch kind of. Um, yeah. So in my current work, I'm kind of exploring that with size. So like the flowers are bigger than the people, the trees are smaller than the people. Um, the painting I'm currently working on is uh, she's like looking or existing in like a Joshua tree type desert, which is, I just visited there with my sister and she has a Joshua tree in her pocket. So it's like, they're as big as her, but she's also like picking them like flowers. So I kind of I want to, I want to think a little bit about like space and not space, like Alan Watts talks about, like that it's actually all the same. And um, I just listened to an interview with Deepak Chopra, Chopra and um, I can't remember who the scientist was, but they were talking about, and I'm going to totally mess this up, but how, how um, everything that we see um, is actually kind of like virtual reality in the sense that we're creating this like data point for the things around us. And I, it makes me think of Alan Watts in the sense of like space and not space and like how we create these like kind of like rubrics for to make sense of this world that we get to exist in. And so I kind of am using my paintings and those like glitches to kind of think about it. Thank you so much for answering that. I do have a follow-up. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you, uh, is this something that comes about like in the process? Um, because the way that you're beautifully putting words to it, I think gives the impression that this is something you really have fully thought about beforehand and then actively put it into the painting. And I'm wondering if, if that's true, like if you're really mapping this out first and intentionally planning things this way, or if these are elements that have kind of like evolved over time. Um, maybe within the process? I think it's more of the second. Okay. <laughs> I was talking with Dave about um, these things uh, actually last night. Um, we, he works nights at, um, at a bar in town. And so we can't, um, we don't get a ton of time to hang out. So like when I'm reading these books, I'm like, oh, I want to talk to him about it, but we only get to talk like once a week. So I'm like, telling him all about it. And I was like, oh, I'm just loving it. It's so cool. And he was like, well, you've been thinking about these things for a long time. And sometimes we forget that that's true, right? Because what I realized is that actually the longer I live and I haven't lived that long is that um, we're constantly relearning the things that we're interested in, um, right? And because we lived, you know, another five years since the last time we were actively thinking about it, um, 
we can put it in context in new ways. So like before I wasn't necessarily reading philosophy, but I was reading a lot of Murakami and, and like very, very obsessed with these ideas of glitches and portals and thinking about space and time. Yeah, I think that they're all ideas that I've always been exploring, but maybe just you know, sometimes we have these ideas or things we're thinking about, but our skills can't meet us there. You know, like I, like I said, I was making a lot of really bad paintings. Like I look back on my paintings and I'm like, I love them because I love that I was trying, you know, or I love that I, I see things that were working, um, in really cool ways. And I also see a lot of things that weren't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you stay with it a while, and this is the practice part um, and the slow part and the part that's boring sometimes is that, um, you know, those ideas don't go away. If you find something you're endlessly excited about, you just find new ways to do them. And hopefully your skills after a while start to meet you there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love the reflection. Um, Dave, your part, is that your partner? Yeah. Um, I love the reflection he gave you about like, well, you've been thinking about these things for a while. And I find that that's true when I look back in retrospect and often it seems much of the difficult work is like parsing it out, giving it language in my own brain so that then I can build on it even more so in my paintings. But it's kind of this like, it's kind of this messy process. Um, so yeah, I loved you explaining that. And I think it's, I think it's important for people to hear because I know that when I listen to people, I'm like, dang, they had this mapped out, written in essay format format. And then they put that horizon in their painting, like <laughs> just to make that point. And then I get like a little bit intimidated. <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, yeah. So that's very cool. Um, okay. So one thing I kind of want to circle around to, and, um, it's a bit of a pivot, but I know it's something you're thinking about. Yeah. It's just this idea of boredom and like the role that boredom is playing in your process. And, um, yeah. Like what is your relationship to that? Like right now, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm trying to reintroduce boredom back into my life. Like, I think Mm. we live in a world where we can be distracted by anything at all times. Um, waking up and immediately looking at your phone or I'm guilty of listening to podcasts all day. So like, there's almost this endless chatter happening in the back of my brain so that I don't have to think right. Um, or be present. Um, and so I've been trying to find ways to be bored. Um, and that can be listening to music. I do think is different depending on the type of music, um, or how loud it is, but, um, I, or walking without listening to anything, Um, but I think that that's the space, you know, people always talk about like the amazing idea that they had came to them in the shower. And it's typically because that's the one quiet place that you have, right? Like that's the one place where you're not being asked to do three things at once. You're not forcing yourself to do three things at once. You're not making dinner, looking at your phone and like, you know, helping a family member or something. Um, so I think that, um, what I've realized is like, uh, intrinsic part of my practice is I need to be forced to sit with my thoughts for a long period of time in a way that doesn't have to be constructive. Like, um, like I, I just need to get comfortable with myself, like with being uncomfortable. So I've been trying to reintroduce that. That's one of the things that like, I've always loved about art is that it was a way for me to 
focus on like the textures of the things in front of me and be present in a really like wonderful way. And at some point, I think we kind of get away from that. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think about boredom? Do you think about it? You know, it's just so funny. We're talking about this because I, I think I think about boredom sometimes less in a moment to moment present sense and more in like an overall feeling about life sense. Like, yeah. Oh, I'm not having enough fun. I'm not stimulated enough. I'm just doing the same thing day in and day out. But just last night, um, I got home from dance and I was like stretching on the floor without music, without anything. And I really had the thought, I was like, dude, when is the last time that you just sat quietly? And I did have a meditation practice for years. Um, that was years ago. (laughs) And I think it is I think that there's something that happened with COVID almost too, where I was like, I needed to be distracted and stimulated and feel more connected. And I mean, any hard time might bring that about regardless of what it is. Um, Even when I'm painting, it's like, I'm often changing the music or listening to a podcast or listening to a voice text from friends or checking my reference image and whatever, you know, there is even like a busyness in the studio. So um, even talking about that is reminding me that like, that would be a nice introduction into my own life. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like I don't, um, I almost sometimes don't know how to, how to be bored. Right. Like Mm. I I do think what you said about like with COVID it almost exacerbated it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's it. I think you got it. it made it so that I was like always listening to the news. Like it yes. wasn't learning anything new, but just, you know, I was ready for the world to end. So I was like, okay, well, you know, like what's, what else is the news having to say? And it, it made it so that I could push all of my thoughts and like anxiety to a corner kind of, and like, listen to this louder voice. Mm. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to, to let that go, to get comfortable with our own like internal like being quiet, but also maybe being frustrated and like having to like sit with that or being like having anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you've talked about if you have it or not, but I have a lot of anxiety. It's a big part of my life. (laughs) I have all the problems. So (laughs) we're open to talk about all that here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, I I don't know. I think sometimes like, of course I don't want to listen to my thoughts. Like, Mm -hmm. but you know, if I'm, I would find myself in this place where I'd be sitting and waiting for a podcast to end so I could do something that required thought. And I would be like, why? (laughs) Like, just turn it off. Like, Mm. turn it off. Like, and you don't need this on. This isn't, you don't even care what you're listening to, you know, like sometimes you do, but it it doesn't have to be all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Before we wrap this up, I would love for you to tell us like all about lunch club. And so people can listen to you talk more because you are very fun to listen to. Um, and I know you have conversations with other people as well and, um, yeah. And anything else you have coming up that you'd like to point us to? Yeah. So I, um, I started lunch club at the beginning of the pandemic, probably because of my anxiety, I felt like I needed to just like find a distraction. And I also wanted to connect with people. You know, we were all alone for two weeks at a time, um, (laughs) until it was forever. So I just started doing it every day and I would just paint or people would ask me to show them how to do certain things. And I would do that. And then eventually I started bringing on other friends of mine who are artists and it evolved into, 
you know, I couldn't keep doing it every day. So now it's Thursday and Friday. And on Fridays, my friend Alexis, who owns Case for Making, which is an art shop here in the city, um, she comes on with me and we we created a framework for 2021 where we do a different color each month um, just because we were trying doing this horrible thing to ourselves we were having to come up with a project each week and I was like let's not do that um so now we explore a different color each month so each Friday is like one of the colors that Case for Making makes um and we kind of just talk about it we paint with it talk about it sometimes she makes the paint from scratch to show us how it's done um and then I bring on different guests um not all the time just because I think you probably know this but doing interviews is hard it's um I want to be respectful. I want to like know all about that person. I also want to ensure I'm introducing them correctly and it's live. So it's like, I totally mess up all the time, but, um, you know, I, I want to not mess up. It's <laughs> more anxiety provoking with a live audience. Like even if, yeah, yeah, this is like some sadism. I don't know. I, I like definitely, I love doing it and I love bringing on guests because, I think what I love about art so much is that there's so many ways to do it, um, to be a professional artist, to have an art career, to just have a practice. Um, and everyone that I know does it in so many cool different ways that I want to, somehow I ended up with a following on Instagram over 10 years, you know? So like, I want to make sure that I use that platform to highlight people who are nailing it you know like mm -hmm. how can I like highlight people who are also making cool things who are like bringing wonderful creative thoughts into this world um so that's what I, I do I bring guests on it's so much fun everyone's so generous with their time um I've had some really fun conversations I'll hopefully have you on yeah um, <laughs> we can hang out um, yeah it's a good time and the um you know, other than that, I'm making a show for myself right now. Um, so I'm not, I don't have any shows planned. I've been doing a lot of group shows. Um, and I realized that at this point I have no back stock of work anymore. Like I've used them for everything, you know, or sold them or whatever, which is wonderful. But now I'm like, I just, I want to have a body of work again, you know, and I don't necessarily want to do it for a show right now. I just want to do it for myself. So I'm doing that. Um, I'm working on some client projects and I'm like, how else can people, I think that's it. <laughs> I just want to, uh, highlight. I love the way you're like, I'm making a show for myself. I'm like, yeah, I would love to, I love the way you said that. And I really want to just normalize that. Cause that's like mainly what I do. I mean, sometimes I'll do shows or group shows, but that's my main process is that I create bodies of work for myself and then like release them to buyers like directly if they want to buy them. Yeah. Um, and I just like the normalization of like, yeah, I'm making a body of work. I mean, it's for myself, but that's what's going on. And it's a very real intense process. Nonetheless. <laughs> it's so nice to, I think you've talked about it, like having, having a framework, like making a framework for building a body of work. Um, it's hard because your only client is you. And, and when you have other things going on or other shows, it's hard to show up for it, but it is, once you get it underway, it just, to me, maybe this is true for you all of a sudden, like everything else and how I like to interpret things and my language around image making, it just becomes so much more clear. Like I have to have personal work to feed 
my client work and to feed my teaching practice and vice versa. Like, you know, financially, I mean, I really need those other things to make space so I can make that work. Um, yeah, I just realized like last year, I didn't really have a body of work. I did a show for Nakata, but it was, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. So it felt really hectic, even though they were angels and are always angels, I was really frazzled. Um, and so I just, I'm like, I, that's really important to me to like, make sure I'm like making constantly building that world, not just doing it when someone's asking me to. Yeah. Yeah. I find the same thing. It's like, I have to be creating my own work. Otherwise the requests I'm getting will always reflect like a past version of myself. Um, so it's like this wheel that has to keep on turning if I don't want to get stuck in repeating things that I'm like, not even that interested in anymore. So yeah. Yeah. Or like, I don't know. Sometimes, um, I don't know if you've taken a break in like ever taken a break in like making paintings, but I, you know, I have, cause I've like had to focus on client work or teaching is t- taken over. And it's such a weird thing to like come back to it after not practicing for a while. Like you said, like you just, you start repeating old things and not in new cool ways. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's weird, boring, not in a good way work. Yeah. That can be a very awkward period, the breaking oh. back in period. Yeah. So for anybody who's going through that, <laughs> it's normal. Yeah, it's normal. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm definitely going to link like your website and Instagram, um, in the show notes, so people can check you out your course and lunch club and all the things. Um, and it was just a real pleasure to get to talk to you. So thank you. Wow. Thank you. You had such great questions. It was very fun to hang out and I'll have to have you on lunch club. Yes, that will be very fun. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Devin. Yeah. Such a big thank you for Lindsay coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to her talk as much as I did. Make sure to join her for her lunch club conversations over on Instagram. I really enjoy those myself and they are great studio fuel. And if you like this podcast, I know you'll like those as well. So you can find um, links to all of Lindsay's things and where to find her in the show notes. Um, as well as where you can follow the show on Instagram at Art and Magic Podcast if you aren't already following us. And that is a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time, I'm sending you lots of love and tons of magic.